Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter One. complete darkness, yet the bubble was filled with light. The noise was still loud, but nothing like before. The deck below my feet shifted immediately, and I saw it tipping away, a warped oval of metal plating ripped from one universe and hauled into another. No gravity, no up or down. As the floor piece canted, it threw me through the air. Air! Yes! Some had come along for the ride! I was free-floating in jump space! The message caught up with me while I was on a quick stopover on Benton in Deriva. I was walking over to my current berth's corporate office on station in order to sign up for a six-month hitch. Things had been working out well as a member of the support team for the assistant engineer aboard Peter Zivkov, a huge mixed hauler on an established, dedicated run. The AE and I got along, and the others on the team left me alone, so we got along. I'd been offered a half-year position, subjective time, and had decided to go for it. The note was from a placement agent I worked with over on Circlet in Juniper System. Subject, UH wants to talk, final meeting, I promise. I was about to delete it out of hand because I was well and truly sick of United Humanity with all their back-and-forth bureaucratic crap. This would mark the third face-to-face with them on top of two conference calls and a separate meeting with my lawyer to sign applications, forms, and NDAs. All this just so we could meet long enough for them to decide if I was the right guy. First they loved me, then they were undecided, then the project was scrapped, then it was on again, then they loved me. I'd only gone this far into the process because UH was a feather in any spacer's cap and a job reference from them would be a door opener. The money was attractive, too, several times the going rate for a civilian gunner of my experience, and I was near the top of the curve. But their red tape was mind-numbing, and the delays had gotten so ridiculous I'd had to take a number of short runs to pay the bills. 
For the six months previous, I'd been doing in-system materials transit, one-jump passenger busing, route courier work, and even a one-off on-station gig, helping with Circlet's big Atmos system refurb. Anything I had a cert for, in other words. Except ship defense. <sighs> the industry was drying up. I could say it now. To myself, anyway. Fleet had been focusing on piracy and intersystem conflicts for the last couple of years, and they had really made space a safer place to travel. That meant civvy gunnery, as a profession, was looking less tenable. Owners and companies alike were beginning to question the financial wisdom of installing and maintaining dedicated fire control stations on their ships, to say nothing of the expertise to run it. A few automated defense products had come out, too, which were selling big. I hated to admit it, but some of those dedicated AIs were pretty good. And if the ship could defend itself, why would anyone need me? That had been said to my face several times within the previous year, and I was beginning to think there was some handwriting on the wall I couldn't read. So I used my Class 4 Systems Engineering Certification and my Alliance Cargo Mates badge, and even my second-degree commercial passenger handling license, instead of working in the one field I considered my calling. It kept me in motion and kept wildly differing pay rates coming my way. It was work, in other words, and I had no right to complain. So, here was UH again, offering me a shiny gunnery carrot. Really good money, sole responsibility for ship defense, travel and accommodation differentials, and even a vague promise of buying out any current contracts, if it all worked out. It was an echo. Why should I trust it? Passing on a solid six months aboard Peter Zivkoff was flat-out risky. United Humanity Incorporated was a massive negotiation outfit a go-between for hire with a track record that spanned the stars. Big corporations and government bodies all across settled space used UH for ending union squabbles, military uprisings, student sit-ins, and company takeovers. No job was too small, no clause too obscure, and they were very well known and admired. It was exactly this rep that made me say yes to the first meeting. Doris Malaver, my agent of several years by that point, had mentioned a couple of freelance job notices, but she'd stressed this one as a prime opportunity. Now it was just seeming like a lot of talk. My first impulse aside, I grabbed an espresso at a coffee bar on the far end of the docks and opened her message as I watched traffic trumble by on B-Dock Avenue. Doris's perky, matronly face and preternaturally sculpted hair, black and blonde this time, jumped into my field of vision with a head gesture. My ocular display implants, or retinals, were convenient for this sort of thing, with the associated bone-conducting speakers implanted in my upper jaw providing a thin version of Doris's bold grumble. She was a real pistol, and I liked her. But this song and dance routine had gotten wearisome, so I watched and listened with skepticism. Hey, Jock, it's me. Okay, Emeraz Basta stopped by from Meerschaum, 
We met him at the second meeting. He says they have the go-ahead from UH at last. I know, I know, we've heard that before, but this time it's happening. I looked over the fourth list details of the job, and it's pure. I had to sign a confidentiality just for that. They showed me the budget outline, and I saw names. You never see names unless it's real, trust me. Get yourself back here. I have until day 227 to produce a gunner with your certification, so it's either you or Beth Flatora, and I hate her, so don't make me give her any work. Between you and me, I'm trying to get her to drop us. She's high maintenance and low profits. You, on the other hand, you are my golden boy. We love you, and we want you to book this job. Amaras told me they usually recruit from Prelin Associates, but they had a directive come down saying they had to start opening up their bids and spread the love around. Prill does supply defense techs, so if Meerschaum can't get what they need from rapid places, they'll go right back to those guys. Where are you anyway? Get over to Circlet right now. Love and kisses. I'm not sure she took a breath the whole time, but that was Doris all over. So it was really happening this time. Or not. Again. I wasn't sure what to think, so I tried not to. I spent time watching the news. Local political squabbles, something about a new tariff the retailers were up in arms about. A stationer here on Benton has won the interstellar sweepstakes for this quarter, lucky so-and-so. Church Space has unveiled a huge vessel christened Attexite that they carved from a single asteroid. Referred to as a cathedral ship, it's beautiful to look at, but ridiculously slow to start and stop, while the cost overruns have thrown their entire territory into recession. <laughs> Idiots. Uh, oh, a few new comedy vids will be hitting the net soon. One or two seem pretty good. Oh, Haley Gardette has another album out. She looks great for her age, and without any gene sculpting, or so her publicists swear. <sighs> as I say, I tried. As soon as Peter Zivkoff off-shifted its current load, my contract with them was complete. The ship would then be off to Styrian Waypoint, 12 light-years away. Now would be the time to re-up for a long-term position while the ship's office was handy and the offer was fresh. On the other hand, Circlet over in Juniper System was just one stop from here. I took a sip of coffee and made a few quick gestures in the air that the wrist comp strapped to my left arm recognized as a search command. It piped the ship arrival and departure schedules for Styrian directly to my retinals and I scrolled through tables and announcements superimposed over my vision. Regular passenger jumps were being pushed out every single shift to Juniper, and then onto Circlet Station only a few hours inside the primary's gravity shadow. That would make for a fast trip in cold passage. It would also make me lose a berth I'd been recommended for by an officer. A written endorsement from a lifer like that would easily snag a half-year hitch from the home office. As one of seven assistants to the assistant engineer. Doris, I dictated after a gesture brought up my mail program. I'll be in your office by late mid-shift on 224. I'm in.
This is a priority account, gentlemen, Heloise Franca explained to us. Us was a Meerschaum mission supervisor named Siddle Ayagatani, who was familiar with the bordering star systems in the corporate space. And me. It was Heloise's job to make sure we wowed the UH folks. They weren't legally bound to agreements with subcontracting services until they signed off on all the people involved. In this case, that would be after the first personnel meeting. United Humanity had a mission that needed to be performed, and Meerschaum and Associates ILLC, a wholly owned subsidiary of Swain Bellows Diversified Holdings Incorporated, was a mid-level subcontractor specializing in space-based security operations. I would also meet the crew then, or the proposed crew, UH could ask for changes in the roster, and finally learn the general nature of the crews. Siddle was essentially a field rep, and as a friend, my personal advocate for the job. He'd worked hand in hand with Doris and was the inside man, putting my name forward. He wouldn't be on the actual crews, but his help in getting the job had been essential. I was past the NDAs, contracts, and forms by this point. My ident verification, cross-border pass validity, and professional certifications had all been confirmed. Doris, wishing me the best, was now past her own security clearance, so she was out of the picture. From this point on, it was up to me to secure the position and help make the cruise happen. The other crew members should have been in this stupid little meeting too, but I was the only one on station yet. The other five were scheduled to converge here within the next couple of days, but for the moment, I had to smile and look eager for all of us. If Meerschaum delivers what United Humanity wants on this one, we'll be looking at a long-term relationship. UH is required to verify that all their negotiated deals are maintained. They need covert action groups, but they don't need us specifically. Our senior veep for long-term planning, Danny Greco, took me aside and strongly emphasized the importance of this contract. Now I'm telling you boys. UH ends up happy. No other outcome is acceptable. We're clear on that? I affirmed that indeed I was, doing my eager, smiley best to seem like this mattered for all the reasons she said it did and wasn't just the first gunnery gig I'd been able to score in almost a year. Siddle simply nodded like a vaguely menacing spook, which always sold the image of complete competence and comprehension to the management types. I knew him from outside the company, and he was actually nothing like that. The KG spy crap was a show, and the suits ate it up with a spoon. It was hard to keep a straight face when I looked at him, in fact, so I concentrated on Heloise's tie, which was hideous. To be sure, Siddle did have some experience in training, though maybe not as much as he implied to his bosses. We'd met about a year before at a general deaf tech conference over on Raindrop and hit it off immediately. He was a senior field agent for the company and designated planner-slash-handler for this mission. He hadn't been legally free to talk details with me beforehand, but we'd gotten together at various points in the hiring process, and he'd at least been able to toss out some monetary ballparks that had made my wallet stand up and take notice. Now, I won't be here for the meeting on 230, 
Heloise continued. I have a supercorp conference on the moors. Yes, that's right. Every branch of Swain Bellows. If I can't report that Meerschaum has UH in the bag, I may as well stay home. And I'm not staying home. Oh, they'll like us all right, Siddle spoke, with such gravitas and implied consequences for failure that I had to cover a guffaw with a coughing fit. <coughs> Wrong pipe, I croaked, pushing my water glass away. Then I muttered something reassuring and held my face as still as I could manage. After that, our Meerschaum manager ran down a list of other nonsense and details we were already fully versed in, then jumped to gather up her jacket and bags when her retinals popped up a reminder of her impending departure. She gave us the tough face, then shook our hands, wished us luck, and walked out. Siddle and I gave her a count of ten to get fully out of earshot, then burst into laughter. <laughs> okay, he said after our mirth. Now that we have the go-ahead from Heloise, I can give you a general overview. This is your last chance to bow out without breaking your contract. If you don't like the job, you aren't obligated to press on. If you agree to go forward, though, you will be bound to the agreement. I know you know all that, Ejok, but I had to say it anyway. Clear? Yeah, yeah, Sid, give. All right. This is a treaty verification job. You probably guessed that much with UH involved. I did. The question is, which side of which border? Corporate space. Their side. Covert. I'd been to team space many times on commercial runs, but never on a job like this. The tech of the military security branch over there was uniformly high, and their weapons and training uniformly impressive. A secret mission on that side of the border would require extra care. Suspected violation? I haven't been told yet, but it seems likely. The UH reps will be here by the end of the week, and they'll give us the rundown. Keep in mind, whatever this is, it'll be a legal mission, covert or no. I grunted in derision. <laughs> For whatever that's worth when weapons go hot. He nodded in agreement and spread his hands. If you get caught, corporate space authorities are supposed to just impound the vessel and deport you all unharmed under a special immunity clause. Things can and often do go wrong in those circumstances, so failure's a poor option. I was a field rep for a job that went south over in Noble Space a few years back. They threw the crew in detention and beat them during interrogations, put the mission leader into a coma. Well, there's motivation for excellence. Union regs in the Alliance, he continued, require a licensed gunner aboard any cruise that has an acknowledged potential to turn ugly, even peace missions like this one. You'll be there in case you're needed, but only as the very last resort. Both UH and Meerschaum expect you to be little more than a passenger on this trip. We have to be clear on that, Ejok. You're clear to me. I'll do everything in my power to not do my job. He nodded with a laugh, and we got up to go. He had a lunch date with his boyfriend, but I walked and talked with him part of the way. We chatted some more about the gig, keeping details vague since we were now in public. 
Even that much was a woeful breach of Meerschaum's security protocol since we could be targeted by competing interests and be under surveillance even from day one, as per the guidebook I'd been hammered with upon sign-up. This had never been known to actually happen, but it was somebody's job to come up with the rules, so I didn't fault them for making a point of it. I didn't sweat it either. No, I don't know any of them personally, outside of you, he told me, in reference to the other crew members. But your mission leader comes down through Swain Bellows with a good rep. We can probably have him bounced if he seems like a tool, but that would be another delay. Wait and see, I guess. I'm sure he's fine, he agreed, then hesitated and posed. Ejok, you really ought to consider leaving field work behind. It's not too late, even now. A guy with your experience could land a training position easy. Is something opening up in Meerschaum? No, we don't do any in-house training, but I know a few people. If you're interested, I can ask around. I mean, let's be real. Commercial gunnery might be gone as an industry in ten years' time. Sure, if Meerschaum starts getting contracts from UH, we'll be looking for talent on a regular basis, but you know how these things go. One committee recommendation on austerity and all the active contracts get cancelled. These big arrangements come and go on the breeze. I'm looking for new digs myself. This field rep thing is all commission-based. And I'm tired of dancing for these suits, man. Maybe I'll apply for your job then, I laughed. But he just shook his head disgustedly. You can have it. He was serious, I could see. Frankly, I thought the problem was exactly the opposite. I needed to get back into field work. We parted ways at an intersection where he caught a tick-tick cab. I'd see him every day for the next week or so as the mission came together, but then after that? Based on the conversation, he might not be with Meerschaum anymore by the time the mission was completed. That would be one less reason to stay with them myself, even if they had more work. Doris would have called me crazy for any ambivalence, but she was all about the payday. When I needed one, she was a good person to talk to. When I needed perspective on my career as a whole, maybe someone from the profession had a better view of things. Siddle's advice wasn't unwelcome, therefore, but the thoughts that sprang up because of it were... By mid-shift on five-day that same week, we were back in the conference room. This time, it was a full house. From Meerschaum, it was Siddle and a guy named Emeros Basta, the one Doris had mentioned in her note. He was cut from a similar cloth as she, with the same boundless energy and friendly demeanor. His hair was okay, though. From United Humanity Incorporated, it was a strategic account planner named Anya Wiiloni. She was a striking older woman with long, poker-straight black hair and some obvious gene sculpting that made her look young, possibly by decades. Soft-spoken and somewhat shy at first, Anya was clearly motivated. She arrived with lots of data and a goal she seemed eager to impart. For the assembled crew, we had our mission leader, 
one Christmas Giordano, or just Chris. He was a man of middle years, with receding hair and a strong physique. Professional and observant, he came across as sharp and ready to work. The pilot and commander of the ship was a woman in her thirties named Mavis Singleton. Her head was bald, and she bore several covered ports on different parts of her skull. Pilots with neurocybernetics had to have special certification, clearing them as fit for flight, and I had no doubt Meerschaum had seen to this detail. All four of her limbs were full replacements, too. Advanced mechanical prostheses sporting teal bioplastic coverings that went really well with her black turtleneck sleeveless shirt and matching shorts. Her blue eyes looked biological, but I learned later on, in casual conversation, that they were also replacements, and a real point of pride. The mission would sport not one, but two dedicated sensor and data technicians. The nature of the job was about gathering information from a distance, so these two were really the stars of the meeting. John Barsons was a young man, maybe in his early 20s. He was short, with dark hair and a cool blandness that struck me as an affectation. He was designated as Sensor Specialist 1, or just SS1, and ostensibly in charge of that aspect of the mission. In reality, his focus was more on the hardware side of long-range surveillance, so he'd really need to be in close partnership with SS2, a tall woman with big hair named Stina Morenda. She sat at the meeting taking copious notes with a bland expression that didn't look affected. Our engineer was a man who was maybe in his early 40s. His name was Dieter Voxel. He sat at the end of the table, slouching back in his chair. He had on a navy blue flight suit and was either starting on a beard or needed a shave. He had brown, slightly tossed hair and a narrow jaw. I would have thought him very hungover, to be honest, but he followed everything Anya said and even asked intelligent, clarifying questions throughout the meeting. And then there was Ejok DeSantos, for guns. Everyone offered nods of greeting when I was introed, which I returned with a measured smile. I tried to be less testing, less deconstructing than was my usual because it could be off-putting, and I wanted this gig to go well. After this first bit of attention, though, I must have pulled a Cheshire cat. In short order, I was invisible. Clearly, they had no idea why I was here, and I was beginning to wonder the same. Reaching up to the Tri-D image above the table, Anya dragged over the stellar map that was holographically displayed, until a red border marked Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation appeared. She moved it past this line slightly, then stopped and zoomed in on a smaller area. Havelina region, she pronounced, highlighting the area for a few moments wherein it glowed yellow. A point of contention some five years back, you may recall. The Alliance and Team Space went tit for tat, building up forces in secondary positions two jumps back from the border. Publicly, this was just a strategic distribution of forces on both sides. But to the Senate Fleet Committee, it was looking like a border war waiting to happen. I thought that was resolved, Dieter put in, raising a finger. 
Didn't fleet and team forces agree to pull back? Yes, she stated, zooming the map in further to a single star system in the region. UH got the contract to negotiate a military reassignment treaty, resulting in the Havelina Reduction Agreement. It seemed to go very well. The star was marked simply 21611B. The annotations that dropped down next to it on this level of detail described a main-sequence star well past its prime. It was 11.8 light-years under the galactic plane and bore a single large gas giant, just shy of brown dwarf status. A small cyan square under the star showed it was a system that only had basic mapping details on file. This could have been for many reasons, but the map notes indicated that 21611B was not along any regular routes, and nothing especially compelling had been found on the first survey pass, however many years ago. That wasn't one of the contended systems, was it? I asked, not recognizing it from any media stories I could recall. I tried to keep half an eye on current headlines, if for no other reason than to learn about areas of, well, opportunity for a guy in my field. This system rang no bells. No, she confirmed, then zoomed in even further to display the stellar layout as it was known. She kept the star system focused in the center, but added movement notation to show its direction of travel in the larger star cluster that the region encompassed. A giant hydrogen-helium planet designated PS2GG revolved around the primary at about 400 million kilometers distance. With a flick of her fingers, Anya opened up a drop-down menu and chose an option. Instantly, bright yellow and pulsing red points of light began to appear on the outer edge of the system. Each light flared a bit, then went out as others popped up next to them, seemingly at random. Date codes accompanied each light's appearance, but the tall woman turned them off when it started getting too busy to follow. That's a lot of traffic, Mavis commented, pointing a pastel finger at the star jump points. For a system of no importance, yes it is, Anya added, letting us see the threat for ourselves. Formally no importance, Siddle said, then reached up and rewound the timeline of the jumps to the start of the sequence. Three years? Why is UH only getting interested now? Well, I've been following this almost from the start, she replied. But I was a junior planner with the company back then, and no one lets juniors run their own initiatives. This kind of activity gets the attention of the senior planning staff eventually. Since it's been my baby all along, and I have a little time with the company now, I was able to score the lead. That makes sense, Stina put in evenly. Thank you. UH Upper Management is watching this one closely. That's why it came together so quickly. I couldn't help snorting over that. I got a few looks, but Emeros stood up, and Anya gave him the floor. Here's the mission, he stated clearly. The assembled specialists in this room will star jump across the border to 21611B and collect as much detailed information as possible. 
This system wasn't the cause of those previous disputes, but it's in a region covered by the treaty. If there is a significant presence of corporate security space branch in the star system, it's a clear breach of the agreement negotiated by United Humanity Incorporated. Such a breach must be reported and new negotiations opened immediately. In short, it would represent an agreement that didn't stick. That's bad for international relations, and it's bad for business. It's also a potential new account, Anya added. A violation in this instance would require a whole new treaty to be put into place, and UH management is very interested in that as well. How much detail are we talking about? John Barsons put in. If they've moved in even as far as that planet there, amassing vessel specs from way out on the edge of the system will be a fishing expedition. Yeah, Chris agreed. Are you sure you want this done covertly? Going in openly and with immunity could get the job done in just a few days. The original treaty, she explained, called for independent spot checks on both sides. That means private contractors for AIN and corporate with no forewarning to be given to either party. Since jumping into military stations unannounced is a good way to start a war all on its own, covert verification is required. It's understood by all parties to be occurring, but it's only legal in the areas of space covered by the treaty. This happens to be one of them now. Now? Chris asked. Anya hedged visibly, then dragged down a flowchart over the map, highlighting each detail as she spoke. When the treaty was negotiated, 21611B was considered to be just outside the contended region, and it doesn't appear on the list of systems in that agreement. Just over three years ago, however, the AIN Survey Corps proposed an update to their mapping protocols with new formulas and a new point of origin within the galactic core. It's set to go into effect in 47 hours. This is public knowledge, but its implications haven't trickled down through the levels of bureaucracy yet. Why do the new maps put this system inside the negotiated area? Dieter asked, still slouching, still hungover. Why doesn't the area itself move with the new reckoning? The UH rep pointed to a particular text bubble on the flowchart, marked Treaty. It opened up another map, this one a large overview of both the Alliance of Interstellar Nations and the Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation, collectively making up just the tiniest portion of the Orion Arm. The small section encompassed by the treaty was highlighted, pulsing red, with vector lines radiating outwards towards the capitals of both territories. The area in question, like with most treaties, was not based off galactic core measurements, but rather territorial ones. The claimed boundaries of the two powers don't change simply because survey methods on one side or the other do. Such things require extensive political negotiations. Here in the Alliance, the Senate is concerned with politics, while Fleet, which actually has to travel across the stars to do its job, utilizes all the latest technical improvements and innovations in navigation methodology. In other words, Emma Ross clarified, 
The new maps, which depict a piece of the moving galaxy, have put 21611B inside an unmoving treaty zone. If the handshake is using this star system for the same kind of military buildup as before, the Alliance needs to know about it. And United Humanity, Anya concluded, wants any information the Senate needs before they even know they need it. This would position us as the only negotiation service for a new treaty that makes any sense. It would be an alpha-level contract for UH because boundary agreements for the entire length of the border will have to be renegotiated. Big money? I asked. Very big. UH would see returns for up to two decades after pulling together such a signing package. As a result, I've been given full access to the emergency slush for any verification duties associated with the Havelina Reduction Agreement. This mission will reflect that level of funding. We want this done quickly, cleanly, and quietly. And that brought her part of the meeting to a close. As the strategic account planner for this UH mission, she would be available for questions and consultations right up to the time of launch. But the actual hands-on planning would be ours. Anya shook hands all around, thanked us, and walked out with Emeros, her customer field representative from Meerschaum, or assigned toady, whichever you prefer. That left the crew alone with its own handler, and Siddle stood up to switch views on the Tri-D. Okay, folks, he stated. Let's get started. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.